Brewers Publications, a.k.a. BP, is the largest publisher of contemporary brewing literature for today's craft brewers, homebrewers, and beer enthusiasts. With over 50 titles to choose from, there's a beer book to fill most needs. Whether you're just discovering beer or are a seasoned professional, BP is the go-to choice for brewers looking to expand their knowledge and hone their craft. Check out the complete BP catalog at BrewersPublications.com. Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and definitely less ukulele in this episode. On this episode, I'm sitting here, I'm talking with a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Jay. Jay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? All right, well, my name is Jay Ankeny, and I've been brewing for about well, probably 25 years, since the early 80s. I was, back then, I, I joined the Maltose Falcons as soon as I found out about them. And then when I learned about the Strand Brewers Club down here in the South Bay, I also joined the Strand Brewers, and I've kind of maintained dual membership ever since. I really appreciate the Maltose Falcons, but you guys are out there in Woodland Hills, which is a good hour drive from here, and that makes it a little bit tough to go out for the, the meetings. And we've got a good club down here in the Strand Brewers, so... I guess it's the only qualification really for joining a club is the ability to write a check. So I've uh, maintained a membership in both of them. I really enjoy teaching about brewing and uh, have tried to make it my goal to, to figure out the simplest and easiest ways to make home brewing a regular part of a person's life, which led me down the path toward extract, which I've uh, found to be a rather successful way to make, make good beer. And I've, uh, as Drew knows, I've won my share of ribbons, so I think I do produce a fairly decent product. If you haven't figured it out, today's topic is going to be about extract and why you <laughs> should brew extract. <laughs> Ta-da! There's a segue. And specifically, we're, ta- we're talking extract with a mini-mash, of course, not just pure extract, but extract with a mini-mash. Absolutely. Joe, you said that you started brewing in uh, the 80s. How did you get started brewing? Actually, I was uh, a video editor at Channel 11 working on a magazine show, and one of the stories that we did was about home brewing. It uh, featured the home wine and beer shop up in Woodland Hills, and I had that revelatory moment that, wow, you mean you can really do this? And so I took a lunch break and drove out to Woodland Hills really quickly and picked up some rudimentary ingredients, and John Dalmay had a, a, spread, had a couple of sheets on how to, how to put together your first batch, and I tried it, and it didn't turn out too bad and thought it was kind of interesting. And then once I found out about the Maltose Falcons, it's a really good, enthusiastic, and inviting group. Once I found out about them, I was, I was really hooked. I thought it was a lot of fun. Well, I'm going to say there's one lie there. There is no such thing as a quick trip out to Woodland Hills. <laughs> well, that may be. If you're not if you're not familiar with the LA geography, uh, and if you don't live in LA, I wouldn't suspect you are. Woodland Hills is on the far far west side of the valley, which pretty much means it's impossible to get to anywhere with any sort of. <laughs> <or lack of. laughs> that's true. That's true. Now you started brewing because of the the magazine, and you obviously started to take this very seriously. And well, you kind of were. Well, you, you used to do a lot more in terms of uh, promotion for brewing. 
yeah, um, a friend of mine and I, we kind of realized that when we picked up some of the beginning Brewer books back then, and we're talking like 84, 85, um, they were really very hard to read. Uh, we, I never forget, we picked up an English beer brewing book, and the first line I read was, Rouse the Words Daily. Now, I know what that means now, but at the time, that was so baffling, and I'm thinking, what, is, what language is this guy writing in? Um, what we really wanted was something that was very simple. I wanted really a picture book. So we thought, hmm, well, this might be kind of interesting. So we decided to write a very simple beginning beer brewing book. We called it Easy Beer. And the original goal was really to have it being 90% pictures and only 10% words. Turned out that ended up with a few more words, and we had a cartoon character that kind of helped guide people through the process. But it was, it was a basic, simple, single-stage, closed fermentation process that I had developed through consultation with some of the other brewers. I can't really say that. Well, I do have two ideas that I believe are fairly unique. But the beginning idea was mostly from talking to various people in the Maltose Falcons with the idea of um, you, you brew up your wort, you cool it down as quickly as possible, you put it into a carboy, and then you fill the carboy about three-quarters of the way full so there's room for the foam to rise and fall in the carboy, and then you top off the wort so it fills the carboy. That way the wort has always stayed in one carboy, uh, you haven't transferred it at all. The foam, all the good stuff that's in the foam has stayed in the carboy, and you let it ferment in the carboy. One of the things that I've always done is, I've, I don't want to say I'm skeptical, but I enjoy kind of questioning some of the known knowledge that has been so accepted in uh, brewing. And one of the things was that you always had to transfer your wort off of the uh, primary fermenter into a secondary fermenter. And I kind of wondered, well, I didn't see professional brewers doing that all the time. I mean, I know that they kind of draw the yeast out from the bottom in their fermentation, but I didn't really see exactly why you had to do that. So, uh, and I was also aware that the more times that you handle the work, the more uh, times you risk contamination, and going from a primary to a secondary is not only a pain in the neck, but also a significant risk for contamination. So we decided to see what would happen if we skipped that process, and we learned that as long as we kept things very, very sterile in the first uh, leg of the, of the brewing, we didn't have any contamination process, uh, problems at all. So this closed, single-stage fermentation process seemed to work very well for us, and of course it eliminated one major step. So anyway, that's the way we, that's the way we kept going. Well, and to elucidate for the audience, because I mean, I think nowadays that process is you know, very well known, and I think the majority of homebrewers now only do single-stage fermentation. Back when were you writing this? Well, I think the, the book first came out in '85. So that's about when we started doing it. Actually, Joe, you, do you really think that most people do use closed single-stage fermentation? Because I'm under the impression, at least in our club, everybody is totally devoted to double-stage fermentation. They just swear by the fact you've got to get that word off of the trout from the first-stage fermentation and go into the second stage. And I always just kind of look at it and say, well, okay, if you want to, just make sure that you're really clean, you know. I would say that yep. these days there are more homebrewers who don't use secondary than who do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Palmer has addressed it uh, by saying, among other things, that uh, the need to use a secondary was driven by uh, commercial brewers who have different concerns than we do because of the size of their fermenters, and also by the fact that yeast back in those days wasn't so great, and uh, you get much better yeast these days, so the need to do that has really uh, gone away. Well, that's very interesting. I invite you guys to come down to one of our meetings in Strand Brewers, and I wonder if that might be a different perspective between you folks out in Woodland Hills and we folks down here in the South Bay, because I, I do believe that in conversations and going to our, our club brews, which we have, you know, a lot of them just like you do, 
Um, well, just be interesting to see if that might be a different perspective. But well, and I'll tell you, it's it's that way in uh, Oregon where Denny is. But it's also if you go around on the internet and you start to read all the modern advice given to people, uh, a lot of homebrewers have eliminated a secondary stage. Well, very good, so, very good. Glad I'm glad to hear it. Glad yeah. to hear it because I think it does make so a lot there, of sense. There you go. So that was in 1985, and now everybody's caught up. Okay, and then what I do is I, I will use, I found three or four brands of malt extract that I really like. I'll tell you that I've done a number of uh, articles for Zymergy uh, back in the, the, 2000, the year 2000. I did the For, for the Beginner series for them. And since then, I've also done a number of other series for Zymergy, one of which was an investigation into malt extract and how it's made around the world. Uh, which raised a, little, a few hackles because I discovered that a number of the European malt extract manufacturers don't actually boil it at all. They use a, a fungal enzyme to con- convert the, the grains, which is a process that is probably about as disgusting as it sounds. And when I put that into an article, Charlie Papazian, uh, well, let's say he didn't like it, and he, he, he canned the article because it didn't look very good for his advertisers. But in doing that, I, I discovered that there really is a wide variety of, of ways that people make malt extract. One of the ones I like the best is Cooper's, because this is an Australian extract manufacturer. Well, what they do is when they're making their uh, making their wood, they basically take the, the, the boiled grains and divide it in half. Part of it goes into the brewery, part of it goes into the malt extract. So it's really the stuff that goes into the extract. So I like this stuff very much. Recently, Brees has come out with, well, not maybe not recently, in the last couple of years, has come out with a line of very light and really good dry malt extract, and so I use that a great deal. But for things like porters, I really believe, I uh, really rely on the Cooper's Dark. That's, in fact, I won a number of, of awards for uh, porters, and it's always with the Cooper's Dark. It's given away a trade secret, I guess. And for, for many of the other ones, I will start off with a breeze as kind of a, a white bread base and use adjuncts to make the variety of varietal beers if I want to. Uh, Irish, uh, you know, an Irish style beer. I'll, I'll use a uh, uh, various grains to make that, or a, a English brown ale. I've got an English brown ale that I'm working on right now that is delicious. Using the, the breeze light extract and then some brown grains that I got from uh, the Culver City shop. So I have kind of a staple of three or four basic extracts that I like to use because now I'm familiar with how they work and what to expect from them, and then use the um, the mini mash. Uh, to create the varietal beers, and that works really well. There are two things, if I could say, though, that I think I've added to the art of home brewing that I like to introduce to people down here, and I've also uh, demonstrated them to the, the folks at the Maltos Falcons. Sometimes I'm a little surprised that they haven't caught on like wildfire, but I guess it's just the way the world is. You know, it's just the way it goes. And one of them is the idea of I don't like to use glass carboys. Among other reasons, I once saw a rather advanced member of the Falcons, to tell you the truth, drop one of those damn things on a concrete floor, and he ended up in the emergency room. Because uh, those things will actually explode. They're, the glass is really under compression, and if you drop them right, they will just, shards will go everywhere. So I decided that was it. So what I use is a plastic sparkless type bottle, but to keep it clean, because you can't really sterilize the sparkless bottle too well, they, they have too many little grooves in them, too many scratches. I found that low-density polyester, uh, I'm sorry, polyethylene, sheepers, low-density <laughs> polyethylene bags, two mils, uh, used as effectively a carboy liner, will give you an absolutely sterile fermentation environment. Now, these are not plastic, just simple plastic bags. These are the kind of bags that are used for, uh, for medical purposes to uh, contain medical uh, equipment when they go through the gamma uh, radiation for sterilization process. 
available for most plastic companies. It's low-density polyethylene bags. A two-mil thickness will fit into a uh, plastic carboy just, just fine. Anything thicker than that, you'll have, a, have trouble getting it through the neck. And what you do is you stuff it in there. You then fill your carboy like you normally would. Uh, when you're done, you just basically take the bag out and throw it away. And, it's, and you have a, a very sterile environment. I uh, use one for the uh, fermentation and another one for priming. The only really kind of a difficulty is that since these are not designed for consumer use, if you buy them, you have to buy them in lots of a thousand. So I have to get some other members <laughs> of, uh, of uh, my club together, and we buy so we buy at about two hundred fifty apiece, and that lasts you for a number of years. But um, anyway, I found that this is really a, a, a a magnificent way to get a very sterile environment to brew in. To be honest, when I started using this, I used to sterilize them with Ida 4 or other sterilants as you usually would, and then I decided to find out, well, what, what would happen if you didn't do that? So I stopped sterilizing them, and I've never had any problems since, which kind of makes sense because they are extruded hot, and they're folded immediately, so I don't see how any contaminants would get into it. Anyway, so uh, uh, an 18-inch by 36-inch bag usually fits a five-gallon carboy just fine, and as I said, when you're done, you just pull it out. You kind of have to rock it back and forth to get uh, to get the air out as you're pulling it out. You pull it out, throw it away, and then stick another one in the next time, and uh, it works really well. Man, I am I am really with you on the glass thing. I started off using a glass, and about oh maybe fifteen, sixteen years and four hundred plus batches ago, I switched over to using plastic buckets. And I am so glad that I did that. Uh, yeah. You know, glass is just too doggone dangerous. Yeah, well, it really is. I I stopped using it because I had two carboys full of a double decocted pilsner, and I accidentally just kind of touched one of them with the other one, and they both shattered. And I watched yeah. uh, all that beer flow down the drain in my garage. <laughs> Yeah, the other the other thing I wanted to bring up uh, to your point about Brees Extract was they are, as far as I know, the only person making a rye extract, and uh, it's oh, right? yeah, it's it's really good. And fortunately, they made it to pretty much mimic the uh, composition of my rye IPA recipe. So basically, all I have to do is use that extract and a little bit of sugar to get the fermentability I need, and I can I can duplicate my rye IPA recipe with extract real easily. Oh, that's great! But that brings up something I wanted to ask you about. Do you ever use sugar in any of your extract beers uh, for extra fermentability? Actually, I don't. I find that it gives a um, uh, a winey taste to it. I know that that will also it will um, uh, bump up the, the alcohol content. But uh, I, I just, I don't, you know. Uh, actually, when you say that, I kind of remember that, you know, homebrewing has been legal in, in Europe and England and Canada for forever, I guess. And I always get a real kick out of the way that uh, on the recipes on the side, they recommend like three pounds of extract and three pounds of sugar. Yeah, that, was, I, that was from the bad old days, man. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's so counterintuitive, for one thing. They're, they're not selling as much extract as they could. I mean, if I was selling malt extract, I'd say use six pounds of extract because I don't want you to go out and buy a bunch of sugar. But also, you're inherently going to end up with a lousy beer. That's, try it that way. It's going to be whiny as heck. We used if you use a lot of sugar, that's true. What I generally do for an extract beer is use maybe between a quarter and half a pound of sugar with the extract, and I find out that uh, that allows me to get exactly the fermentability and body that I get in my all-grain beers. Anyway, the other thing I'd, I'd just like to 
share with your listeners or readers is uh, the other kind of innovation that we've introduced to, I think, to, to brewing is when it comes to cooling the beer. I know a lot of people like to use immersion chillers and the counterflow chillers. And boy, those are wonderful things to work and to see work. And uh, I know some guys really like uh, to play around with gizmos and equipment, but I don't. And I wanted to make it as simple as possible. So what we've been using is what I call a sterile ice cube. You take a Tupperware container, a two-quart Tupperware container, fill it with boiling water, put the top on, and after it pops off two or three times because the steam will pop it off, let it cool a bit, put it in the fridge, and then eventually put it in the freezer when it's not going to you know, mess up your coils so it's not too hot, and you end up with a sterile ice cube. Then when you're done with your, when you're done with your brewing, when, the, when it comes off of the, uh, the stove, and by the way, I, I brew on a stove top. I, I do uh, stovetop brewing because... I live in a fairly small apartment, don't have the room for all the, the wonderful, you know, brew, brew sculptures that some guys can mess with. So I, I brew on a stovetop. When I'm done, I take my, my boil pot that has, by that time, about three gallons of, of wort in it. I put it into a uh, sink that's filled with cold water. So that knocks down maybe the first 20 degrees of, of, of heat. Well, I should throw in a little bit of cold water there, too, to make it to bring down some of the temperature. And then I will uh, loosen the ice cube from that Tupperware container and plop it in. And that two-quart ice cube will chill down the wort to pitching temperature within about 20 minutes. And you have nothing to clean, nothing to sterilize. You just put that Tupperware container back in the, in the, uh, uh, in the shelf, and you're ready to go. And I've had some, some friends have been experimenting with it, but the fact that this isn't... Uh, you know, universally done, I find very, very interesting. You know, the guy that, brewed, that made the, that wrote the book Brewing Lager Beers, I believe it was Craig Newman? Yep. Who was, yeah, who was a friend of mine up in Vermont. He's a very nice, he was a very nice guy. Regrettably, he's passed, but I always go visit him when I was up there. And when he started the Seven Barrel Brewery, the, the last one that he started, he was experimenting with this on his brewing systems. So at least he, at least he saw the logic of it. But I highly recommend it to everybody. I, and the reasons I get, uh, when I talk to some of our brewers down here, some people say, well, you'd have to adjust the amount of water in your, in your wort. Okay, you, that's right, you would. <laughs> but that's, that's not that difficult. Um, anyway, so that's something I highly recommend to people. That makes, makes the brewing system much, much simpler. Of course, now you do have to remember to make that sterile ice cube the day ahead of time. That's, that's true. You've got to prepare on that. But um, anyway, the, the idea that you have nothing to sterilize and no equipment to put away is what I think is quite an advantage. Well, there you go. Yeah, and that definitely gives you a little additional safety over the old advice of, oh, go grab a 20-pound sack of ice from the grocery store. And well, that's and, not, you see people and, still you know, working on that. Not, and it's, that's not sterile. You know, it's not sterile. Yeah. I also, by the way, just to uh, extend the, the, uh, the heretical nature of our brewing process, I don't make starters. Now, I know that everybody is convinced you always have to make a yeast starter, but that's just one more step that has the potential of contamination. And I find that especially the new dry yeast packs that you can buy, which have much more yeast cells than even the liquid yeast uh, that we've always you know, relied on so much, if I get the fermentation going within 12 hours, actually within 8 hours or much faster than that, I'm satisfied. If I get a layer of foam going within 6 or 8 hours, that's good enough for me. And that's what happens. So I will bypass the starter process and just dump the, uh, the yeast in as I'm transferring the wort into the carboy, and uh, seems to work. I haven't had a contaminated beer in a long time. Well, and you know, there's, there's 
people questioning the uh, the yeast starter wisdom uh, these days, you'll see people doing multiple packs or vials of liquid yeast as well. But uh, yeah, it, it's the slogan that Denny always has. Denny, you want to tell them what the slogan is? <laughs> Which one? The best beer possible with the least effort possible while having the most fun possible. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, and then also, what does uh, barley? Oh, want? Uh, malted barley wants to become beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, along those lines, you know, as, as you know, I'm also very much in the mead. And one of the things that I'm I'm puzzled about in, in mead presentations that I see at the NHC and other places is this idea of multiple yeast nutrient additions. Geez, that means you're opening up your your mead every uh, three or four days and adding in some stuff that the yeast nutrient is not sterile. And you're, you're adding in these things all the time and exposing it to air. Uh, again, I kind of scratch my head over that. And I say, why would you do that? And to be honest, especially the NHC, sometimes when I tasted those meats that people have done very proudly adding in five or six different additions of yeast nutrient, they're contaminated. And it's pretty hard to contaminate a mead. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, all right. So, Jay, the... The big question I think a lot of people are going to have is you know, <laughs> the big question. there's a well, yeah. <laughs> what is so the, the big question? Of life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> Indeed, we know the well, answer is forty-two, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Okay, the asterisks in ASCII. Um, so the natural progression, at least I think, at least the way it's sold to a lot of brewers and the way a lot of brewers see it is okay look i'm going to start with extract and maybe i do extract with a little bit of grains and whatnot but you know then at some point in time if i'm going to become a real brewer i have to you know go and make a mash ton and start with all grain and everything else and yet you know here we are you're we're talking with you and you've been doing uh, the extract and mini mash uh, setup since 1980 something or other uh so now really uh, you know did you uh, I, I know you've done all grain beer before because I've been around you when that's happened. But uh, why stick with extract all those years? Well, it, it really comes down to if I, I, I usually brew on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, I'm pretty busy during the week. So either Saturday or Sunday afternoon. The question is, do I want to spend a whole Saturday afternoon brewing and then putting away all that equipment, or do I want to spend the after, do I want to spend like a, a few hours brewing and then going out and having some fun? And I want to spend I want to go out and have some fun. I also like really. A, a, for me, especially, maybe it's because I'm a bottler, I like to have a constant supply of a variety of beers on hand. I know the people, if you have the space, if you have a big kegerator and you can have five or six kegs, well, that handles that. But I don't have that kind of space. I like to have a variety of beer around because I have some friends that like dark beers, some friends like light beers, you know, and you want to serve what the people want. Um, so by having a simple way of brewing, that means I can have a continuous supply of beer on hand, um, of, of different varieties. So basically, it's just a matter of uh, being able to keep the pro- keeping the product coming without having to break your back doing it. It's uh, Also, to be honest, I really like the result. I think I end up with a beer that at least I enjoy. Wow, which well, is after all. When, yeah, exactly. That's why you anyway. do it. Yeah. Now, understand, I'm, I'm aware that the advantages of all-grain brewing, I mean, when I go to our festivals, whenever I go up to a Falcons thing, it's wonderful to see some of the beers that, that people turn out. And I will grant you that you can probably get a wider variety of beer using all grain processes. That's probably true. Uh, you have more control over the grain mill, uh, the grain bill. Um, but you know, with all the adjunct grains that are available today, you can get pretty darn fancy with that mini mesh. And all the different yeasts that are available, I don't really feel constrained by not having the ability to put to create enough variety of beer to satisfy my tastes. 
And, uh, you know, uh, let me give you an example. We've got one of our members uh, named Jim who has one of the most magnificent brewing setups in his his garage that I've ever seen. He's got two computers, four digital sensors, six or seven electric pumps going on there. He spends a good hour or two making up the recipe. The guy spends 20 minutes calibrating his pH meter when he starts out. And when, when anybody says this isn't rocket science, well, he is really a rocket scientist. He works for Rocketdyne. He really, really knows this stuff. When he starts out to make something, he, he you know, a Belgian wit or something, he knows he's going to end up with a Belgian wit. I mean, he's going to hit it right on when he's done. Now, all of this is wonderful. Two years ago at the PBC, he got best of show. I, with my mm-hmm. stovetop system, got to run up best of show. <laughs> so I thought, I thought that was kind of funny. But also, he he takes a little of the, of the magic out of it. I mean, seriously, when he does st- set out to make a you know, a, a Belgian wit from the left side of Belgian on the right hand of the mountain, he knows he's going to end up with exactly that. I'm going to come close to what I'm going to end up with, but there's a little bit of excitement there, you know? So, uh, talking about water, um, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that has come up in recent years is because extract is produced with all the minerals that uh, are you really need, you know, when the extract is made, that a lot of extract brewers have started using distilled water because you don't need anything else. Do you do anything like that? Or you just use your tap water? Or what kind you of know, water? I really, do you- I really use just tap water. Of course, it's, you know, it's going to be boiled for two reasons. First of all, I'm lazy. But the other, the other reason is that I'm aware that distinctive styles of beers around the world have always been t- determined by the local water. That's what makes a difference between many different kinds of styles. Now, obviously, if I didn't like what I was ending up with, I'd make a change. I'd go to the most, uh, reverse osmosis water or use, use uh, uh, sterile water or, you know, spring water or whatever. But, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm lucky down here in Manhattan Beach. We've got good-tasting water. It's fairly hard. But it, it ends up tasting pretty good. I'll add some gypsum, you right. know, um, and some some other things. But uh, it's really more a matter of I I like the result, so I don't mess with it. <laughs> That's the way to be, man. Believe yeah. me. <laughs> well, and you mentioned earlier that you said you know with all grain brewing, you feel like you could you know have a wider array of things that you could brew just barely. So. Can you give people an example of some things that you think where extract uh, excels and where extract doesn't excel, where it kind of falls flat on its face, something that you don't think you can reliably do without doing grain? Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say that. I mean, I'm sure that all grain in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing is going to probably be better on all levels. I, I wouldn't really want to say, say anything about that. Uh, if you know what you're doing and you've got the equipment, you've got the time, uh, definitely the... the um, you know, all grain is going, to, is going to be a better way to go. If, if you want to put in the time and the money and the space and the equipment, uh, more power to them. I mean, for example, this, this right. friend of mine, Jim, that I mentioned before, it's a wonder to see this guy work that system. It really is amazing. Running around taking notes like a mad scientist all the way through it, and he knows exactly what's happening, exactly where it goes. Uh, the, guy's, the guy's terrific. Uh, and, and it's fun to watch him do it. I just don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I have that feeling about a lot of things, man. You know, I'll watch you do it. But as a matter of fact, I was just at the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference, and a, a good friend did a seminar on brewing Stein beer. You know, where you heat stones yeah. and drop it in. And she does this every year. Invites her whole club over to do it. 
And I was sitting there thinking, man, am I glad I get to see this seminar so I don't have to do this myself. Oh, exactly. That's the way I feel when I go to, we have a, a club brews on a regular basis, just like the Falcons do. And I go to these things, get there at 6 o'clock in the morning when they mash in, you know, and, and we'll stay until about 5 or 6 in the afternoon when it's done. And I think, oh, I'm awfully glad to see this. And I'm awfully glad I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now, uh, so... Jay, going back to the idea of things that you shouldn't do with extract, is there a style of beer in particular that you've tried to do with extract that you don't think works very well? You know, I, I really can't say that there... Uh, well, first of all, I haven't tried every style of beer, but I will say that recently I've come up with a uh, recipe for what I call a duplex lager that I'm extremely excited about, and that's because I do have, I do have a lagering cooler, so I can I can handle the cold the cold uh, temperatures. But what I've been doing is this actually came out of the last uh, uh, National Homebrewers Convention, where in the in the uh, expo area they were giving away all kinds of wacky grains and you know unique kinds of yeasts and things. And I picked up this really really dark grain, and so I decided just for the heck of it, why not make a light lager and then throw in some of this really really dark grain, just a little bit, to see what happens. And what what turned out was. I've got a lager that actually has two different grain tastes. It doesn't blend like you would say kind of an amber lager. It doesn't blend. You can taste the lighter grains, and you can also taste this really dark grain, kind of an overtaste. So I call it a, a, a duplex taste, and I'm fascinated by it. It doesn't fit any category that I would, I would know, although the guys in the club think it's kind of sort of like a Vienna lager, sort of. But it's that dual taste, that duplex taste that I really enjoy. So, I mean, that's something I'm doing with extract that I've never seen anybody do with uh, all grain. Not that they couldn't. They just, have, uh, just haven't seen it. Uh, that sounds pretty awesome. Uh, actually, it is. You know, for the uh, for the listeners, would you mind sharing that recipe for the duplex lager? Uh, well, sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, four pounds of breeze extract, one pound of rice extract. That's the basic, uh, the bed. And then, uh, let's see, a pound and a half of... Uh, Munich light grains, and then <laughs> here I would have to stress because I really don't remember exactly what that really dark grain was. But these days, whenever I go to, since I've run out of it, these days whenever I go to the homebrew shop, I just find whatever the darkest grain they have. I think it was a Korea, I think was the name of the last one they used. I really don't have any on the shelf, so I can't look at the bag. But I find just a very, very dark, rich, dark grain, and then put in about six ounces of that. So a very small amount of this really dark grain. And then I use the safe lager uh, dry yeast and f- fermented about 45 degrees. Yeah, and just what, a traditional lager ferment? Right, traditional lager. And, that, and that's cool. And how long does that take for you to throw together? Uh, to throw together? Oh, about three hours. I mean, my, my brewing process takes about three hours to put together. And then uh, I'll ferment it for three or four three or four weeks. And then, you know, the bottling takes about two hours. Again, I, I don't keg because I don't have the space. And, and, I, and I like the idea of bottling it. Bottling is kind of a a fun, mindless thing to do, and it's kind of nice to be able to reach into the fridge and pull out a bottle and pop the top and pour it for your friends. It kind of looks nice. Uh, so you're, you're one of those weird people who thinks bottling's meditative. Yeah, really. Yeah, well, it is. You know, it's, it's, it, you, know, you, know, you kind of do it while watching a baseball game. It's kind of nice. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that there's anything in the world that would convince me to bottle again, man. Really? Yeah. Okay. At least not well, you know, not on a regular basis, you know. I have to say that one of the advantages I have is, fortunately, in the apartment I live in, I've got the world's best sink for home brewing. It's kind of a bathtub type sink, the kind of thing you sometimes see in a barn or something. How, why or how it got into this apartment, I don't know. But it doesn't have a divider in the middle, 
So it very nicely fits, 36 16-ounce bottles, just very nicely. So I can line them all up. I, I, when I sterilize them, I always use boiling water. I don't I try to avoid all chemicals when possible. So I've got a brew pot sitting around doing no good. I'll get it full of boiling water and just uh, fill the bottles with this water, and then I've got a draining box that I turn the bottles over and let them drain out. And uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. I guess if, it, if I wasn't set up so, to make it so easy, maybe I wouldn't do it that way. But, frankly, bottling is a fairly easy thing. All right. Well, all right. Well, Jay, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us. But before we sure. leave, uh, any other thoughts that you have that you want to share out to people about you know, why they should really you know, explore extract or other things that they really should think about? Oh, just because you have a life. <laughs> you, can, you can do other things. Well, actually, I'm gonna, the other thing is, I really enjoy teaching people how to brew, introducing people to home brewing. I, I think I mentioned this earlier, that was my moment of revelation when I found out that you could do this. But I'm always, I always, have, I regularly had the experience of like standing in line at Trader Joe's wearing a uh, club T-shirt, you know, and people would be behind me and say, "Hey, are you a home brewer?" And, yeah. You mean you can really make your own beer at home? Yeah, you can. You really can. And one of the things we've done in the Strand Brewers, we've made up these greet, what I call greeting cards. So it's basically a card to hand out to people to tell them about the club, where we meet, and what it is, and also let them know that home brewing is, is not only legal, but highly possible. Because it's, it's great to be able to introduce them to it. I don't know, it's kind of hard to introduce people to home brewing if you're using an all grain process, you know, it's a lot of equipment and all. But if I can get somebody to come over for an afternoon and have a beer, and I'll show them how they can put together a, a batch of extract beer in about three hours using nothing more than a big old spaghetti pot. Well, that's, I mean, it's a brewing pot, of course, but I mean, just a very large pot and some siphon tubes and a carboy and some of these magic uh, uh, low-density polyethylene bags. Uh, they say, well, wait a minute, I can do that. And the investment in, in, you know, except for buying that pot, which many people are lying around anyway, is nothing. Then why not do it? And I'll, uh, when I'm starting it off, I'll suggest, listen, you don't have to go out and invest in a whole bunch of bottles. As long as you can get some good soft drink bottles that you can sterilize. Um, and when I say to sterilize, I figure if, if it's a sugar-free soft drink that has a good screw-on cap, and you take some water out of your tea kettle that was boiling last night and was cooled down, that's pretty sterile right there. Just use that to rinse the bottles a bit. That's good enough for your first batch. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll hold it. Don't, don't bother to go out and invest in a capper and bottles. Just get something that's, that's around home that'll do it. Um, you can get off the ground with very little investment. Play with it. Enjoy it. If it's something you want, then you go out and you buy the equipment. If it's not, hey, you've had some fun. You did it. It's great. Well, there you go. Keep it simple and uh, keep moving on with your life and have some beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, again, uh, Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, we've My been pleasure. talking with... With uh, Jay Ankeny, who wrote a new easy beer, which is actually still available on Amazon. There are two copies, as I'm looking right now. We'll include <laughs> a link to the low-density polyethylene liners. And we'll also uh, keep a transcription of the duplex lager up on our website so that people can enjoy. So just remember, make, make sure that you're brewing. And brewing with extract is fun. That's right. All right. <laughs> Great talking to you, Jay. Thanks a lot, man. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope you enjoyed this exploration of extract brewing and why you should do it with our good friend, Jay Ankeny. 
Uh, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can always drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at XB Brewing, or on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew form known to mankind and some known to alien life forms. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. We'll see you next time. 